Another super interesting thing that you use with great discipline is something that I think Charlie Munger came up with when he said, whenever you invest, think also of the opportunity cost. That dollar is not going to be invested in something else. And you, you really make it a habit of comparing that. Can you share with our audience how you do that? Yeah, and so, so this kind of comes from... So we look at sort of decision quality in everything we do, which is, you know, how do we set ourselves up to make a good decision? And, and one of the ways to set yourself up to make a bad decision, we would argue, is to limit your alternative set. So the, so the problem with a follow-on round is like I'm saying, with this dollars, you know, by the way, it might be you know, two-thirds of my entire fund, I can only invest in companies that I've already invested in. So now all of a sudden you've shrunk the universe of potential investments down into this really small amount. And from our point of view, we take, as you say, the Charlie Munger approach, which is, Every time we're going to make an investment, we look at this investment relative to every other place we can put this check. And so if we're restricting the amount of places that we can put that check, we think by definition, you're, you're setting yourself up for poor decision making. Is there anything in these 10 years, and you had a corporate background, uh, and now you have 10 years VC, and uh, is there something where you changed your mind about recently? Recently, well, so, so this wasn't exactly recently, but we did a, um, one of the big changes we, early on, we were trying to think, well, you know, does our analytic process make sense? You know, so we thought it did, but like everybody in the industry is telling us it doesn't. And so it was like, well, you know, we have to like sort of think this through. And so a couple of sort of, we had a couple of like sort of influential experiences in terms of how we thought about things. So one is we made 64 investments in fund one, 44 of them, we ran the whole process, you know, boiled it all the way down to probability weighted multiple. In 20 cases, we didn't. We, we used kind of the, the standard process. We did a bunch of interviews and, you know, thinking and whatnot, but we didn't put numbers down. And the reason we did that is because, well, first of all, early on, it was very expensive for us to run the whole process. So we didn't have enough time to do it for every, with everything. And then we also had some investments where it's like, oh, you know, famous investor XYZ is investing. So they must have done their homework so we don't have to. So when we step back and now, you know, now it's been a few years since we've invested fund one, out of the 20 companies where we did not use the process, we have a 50% failure rate, five zero. Half of them are out of business. In the times where we did use the process, one five, 15% are out of business. So for just from a, a, an understanding the losses, we've said from a kind of an A-B testing point of view, like running the numbers actually worked dramatically better for us. And then we had a couple other things that happened too. So we had, a, we, had, we had a couple of investments where it didn't pencil out for us. We actually ran the numbers and it was like a 3X multiple or something like that. And we wanted 10X. But we're like, oh, but you know, this venture firm is investing and these famous people are involved and so forth. So, so we must have made a mistake. So let's, we're going to invest anyway. Every time we've done that, it's been a bad outcome. On the flip side, we've had a couple of times where we had an entrepreneur where it was like, wow, you know, that entrepreneur is, has such an ego I'm not sure anybody's going to be willing to work for them. And so we cranked up the team risk in our model and it still said to invest. And they're like, mm, we're only going to invest a small part of what we usually invest. And of course, those couple of times have been huge home runs. And so as we sit back, it's sort of like, well, if, we, if our intuition says something that's different than the model, one of two things is going on. Either the model's wrong. And so we go through the model and say, did we made a math error or that sort of thing. And if the model's not wrong, that means our intuition's off. 
And, and when you're in a world with so much uncertainty and there's so many factors going into what makes for a good company, we find that intuition is, intuition is good on individual elements. Intuition we think is bad in terms of like rolling it all together and do you make a decision? So, so that's been, that, that's a big learning for us, which is it's like, you know, follow the model. If the model seems like all the inputs are right and you're soft and you're it's different than your intuition, the model is going to be a much better way to go than your intuition. Beautiful loop of analysis and intuition. Do you want to make your sales more repeatable and reliable? Do you want to have less volatility and more growth in your revenue per month? At Strategy Sprints, we do only one thing. Strategy in Sprints. Strategy means more revenue through a better offer. Doing it in Sprints means having more energy in your team every week. Check out if your ROI is as high as it is for most service-based and online businesses and startups we work with, which is over 100%. You can see yours in just 15 minutes by going to strategysprints.com sales and completing our exercise to know what your ROI would be with our accelerator program. We are ready to sprint. Are you? Now, you said also this big name went in. And at that point, this is one of the stories that I encounter a lot, where the gap between facts and stories really go apart. So whenever I have a client who tells me a story about fraud in investment, like the founder who tricked the numbers, or I'm sure you heard hundreds of this uh, And whenever I hear that story and I ask, how is it possible that you didn't see this earlier? Something comes up like, well, you know, this and that name or this and that institution was in there. So I assumed that they did their job. Uh, did you encounter this kind of, of bias also? Oh, yeah. So... Uh... And, and we've learned our lesson on that one in a couple of very painful examples. I'll just give you one. So this was, uh, you know, one of the, the best known venture capital funds. So we, by the way, we were halfway through the diligence on this startup company. And right in the middle of our diligence, this well-known venture firm comes in and leads the seed round. And so first thing we're always like, oh, are we going to get kicked out? And so we talked to this, you know, well-known venture firm and, and they, they let us invest. And so we kind of patted ourselves on the back and it was like, oh, you know, lucky us, we, you know, we got to invest alongside this famous VC firm. And they're like, oh, and you know, they're this famous VC firm. So we just stopped our diligence at that point. Exactly. <laughs> and so, and then like, not like, it was probably six months later, the company's out of business because there was a missing co-founder. So, so one, of the, one of the standard things we, we look for in, the, in our diligence, I mean, we, we have to call it the, are you being sued conversation? And we just kind of go through a, a, a wide, rich set of questions on nice. you know, things we've seen go wrong in the, in the startup world. And one of them is, you know, has there ever been anybody else involved in the company that's now no longer involved? Right. This is the missing founder. So this is a, and, and oh, by the way, if there is, you know, then we, oh, do you have a release from them? And we've got a whole process to making sure that, you know, that risk is covered off. Well, it turns out in this company, we didn't get to that. Are you being sued conversation? There was a founder that was previously in the company had now left. And of course, when, you know, the famous VC came in, now the founder that had left was like, oh, I didn't think that company was worth very much, but now it must be worth a lot. I own half the stock there, right? Because I was a co-founder. And so there was this huge dispute in terms of like, well, does the co-founder actually own the stock or not? And it got so ugly that the company actually went out of business. And so that, that's an example. 
and you know, we, it's sort of like, you know, we, we were just a couple of steps away from that, a very, that a very standard part of our process. And we just skipped it because we thought, oh, the famous VC must be doing that. And, and they never checked. This is something I heard at dozens of times from clients and uh, last time last week, last week from an investor. So please, people, uh, put together your checklist. Don't let the halo of big names at any point bring you away from your intuition and your due diligence. Do both always. So this checklist that you have, that's a gold mine, Clint. It's always do your homework. Exactly. Now I'm curious, what are maybe the two most inspirational professional books? Yeah, so, um, so one that immediately comes to mind is Poor Charlie's Almanac. Mm -hmm. It's a collection of writings by, from Charlie Munger. And in my mind, that's the best book on decision-making that I've run across. By the, by the way, you know, he doesn't claim to be a decision-making expert. And there are a whole bunch of other people and Asian people that won Nobel Prizes that claim to be decision-making experts. And you know, the decision-making experts say things like, oh, there's a representative bias and anchoring bias. And you know, they got all these, matter of fact, there's like over 100 biases out there. And Charlie Munger basically says, you know, people are greedy, people are fearful. Oh, by the way, people are lazy. And it's back to this doing your homework, because that, that's actually probably the, the single biggest mistake investors make, because they get lazy, right? It's like, I got a great tip, or so-and-so is investing, and so forth. And so I find he just describes things in a way that I think, you know, it's sort of like that describes the, the problems that I see in investing versus the academics, which are describing things where you can get nice studies on and that sort of thing. So the, the academics cover, call it like the 20% of what's going on, and Charlie Munger covers like the other 80%. Beautiful. And what's the second most inspiring professional book? Uh, you know, so it's interesting. There's a book called The Dip. And um, Godin, beautiful. Yes, yes. And, and it's, a, it's a really short little book, but he describes when is it smart to give up? And, and you know, for me, that's a, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a, a type A kind of guy, right? So if I get into something, by God, I'm going to get out the other way, other side and be successful no matter what. And, you know, it's like sometimes that's not a good use of my time. Right. So, so, so what sort of challenges are, you know, are kind of like, you know, do I have something special I'm bringing to the table? And oh, by the way, if I get out the other side, is that a kind of a reward that's worth my, uh, worth my time? So, you know, very powerful thought. This is beautiful. It's, it's somewhere up there and uh, it is, I think the smallest and the one, one of the few that is not a bestseller and is not mainstream of Seth. And it's also my favorite, beautiful. The dip. And um, if we go to a more personal side, what are two books that inspire you uh, on a personal level? So, so I'm a big science fiction fan. And so, you know, probably the, the work, and this was like, you know, back in high school was, you know, Isaac Asimov, and he's got this foundation trilogy. And it's kind of a, it's a future view of the world where um, essentially, you know, things like sociology and psychology have been perfected to the point where you can like very clearly predict things and like, you know, what that does to society. So if you really, really understood society and you really, really understood people, guess what? That creates all kinds of problems too. Beautiful. And uh, uh, as the second inspiring personal book. So I guess this, this is kind of a combination personal and professional book, but the seven habits of highly effective people. And I had a really maybe unusual experience with this book. <clears throat> so this came out when I was in graduate school. And <clears throat> when you're in a graduate school, especially a PhD program, <clears throat> 
there's this great little window. Once you've qualified, it takes about a couple, it took me a couple years to qualify. And that means all my course requirements were completed. <clears throat> all I had left to do with the dissertation. But for like a year or so, nobody really expects you to make any progress. So you can kind of do whatever you want. And it's like, you're not really held accountable to that. So that was fabulous. And right in the middle of that, the seven habits of highly effective people came out. And so, you know, habit number one, begin with the end in mind. So I spent a month trying to come up with my personal mission statement and completely failed. And at the time, uh, like, you know, I, I was, you know, I was pointed in the direction of entrepreneurship and Silicon Valley and that sort of thing. So at the time, Hewlett Packard was like the big success story at the time. And so I would have a mission statement, you know, if I created that, you know, the next Hewlett Packard, I'm on my deathbed, you know, was it worth it? Was that, that a life well lived? I was like, well, it depends. And uh, as a, my professor at Stanford uh, relayed this story. He worked at MIT for a while. And uh, um, they have a Sloan School of Management. And so Sloan, who was the, the, the CEO of GM and really built GM up to a huge success, was there actually dedicating the school. And somebody asked him a question, was it worth it? You know, at the time he was like the icon, you know, the, you know, like the Steve Jobs of the time, right? He made this like an you know, incredible company. And his answer was, no, my children are strangers. Mm. It's like, oh, that, that's hit, that, like, you know, that just got me in the gut. And I'm like, okay, you know, I'm sitting on my deathbed. I've created the next Hewlett Packard. My children are strangers. Is that the kind of life I want to live? And it's like, no. And like every time I came up with a mission statement that had specific goals in it, I had, you know, essentially that kind of problem. And so after a month of this, I completely gave up a mission statement. And I now have what I call my personal creed, which is how I live my life. And so it's things like, you know, live life with an adventure, um, meet challenges with love, be true to myself. And so I've got this kind of personal creed that has really you know, been my, my North Star, if you will, ever since. This is beautiful. How to reframe from a goal which can become very extraneous and, um, and even derail you to the, to the journey itself, which has so many small decisions every day, and you can use that as a compass. This is really powerful. Uh, it, re it reminds me of Clayton Christensen's uh, How Will You Measure Your Life? Who, mm -hmm. Because he, he just passed away. And, uh, and, and again, this is one of the books where the author, I think this is the least, uh, the least successful book, but it was something that he, I think it was a whole year at Harvard that he did just about that. And mm -hmm. so when I read that, I thought, wow, this is how you can use that power, that, that lever of that situation of every one year of a young life in front of you and asking, asking powerful questions. It, it reminds me of that. Thank you for sharing it. So if you think of young people entering now the industry of the, of the venture uh, firms, What is, what is an, an advice, a tip you would give them? Well, I think the first thing I'd say is just to make sure you've like kind of understand the context of venture. So venture capital is a teeny tiny little industry. So like in the US, maybe there's uh, about 1,200 venture firms. You know, each venture firm maybe has, you know, on average, I mean, most of them are really small, but so on average, maybe they have three or four investment partners. And the really big ones might have, you know, a couple of dozen investment partners, but there's very few of those. So, so net net, the whole industry probably has about 9,000 investment professionals. So just to give you a sense of context, there's more investment bankers at Goldman Sachs than in the entire venture industry in the US. So that's the first thing, it's a really tiny industry. 
And the second thing I would say, it's a really top heavy industry. So for a lot of services organizations, you think about like consulting or accounting or lawyer, you've got a lot of people at the junior level, and then you've got, a, you've got this pyramid structure with a small, people, a small number of people at the top. Venture capital is like the reverse pyramid. There's a lot of firms like Benchmark, for example, famously, they've got you know, like eight partners at the top and they have no associates or junior people. And so a, a lot of venture folks, so if you're trying to get into venture capital as a young person, it's not like there's an there's a entry level job and a path to partner. It's a, um, so I'd say getting into, into venture and just about everybody's got a really strange story of how they got into venture. And a lot of it has to do with, well, I met somebody or I knew somebody. So, so to get into venture, I'd say, you know, it's the meet somebody, know somebody. And oh, by the way, if you get funding from a venture fund, that's a great way to meet people and to know people. So, so it's a, um, yeah, I've had a lot of people ask me about that. It's like, how do I get into venture? And I think the, the easiest way to get into venture is go be really successful some other place and then use your own money and start making investments. And so, by the way, that's how I got into venture. And should these people then go in just as a private investor or try and become part of an investor network or investor firm? Yeah, you know, I, I definitely, I'm a big fan of, of angel investing and angel groups and so forth. So you need a little bit of capital to go do that, but not a lot. I mean, sometimes, especially with an angel group, you could put $5,000, you know, and you got 10 other people doing that. And now you have a $50,000 investment and that can be meaningful to an early stage uh, invest, early stage startup person. And, and I think, you know, the nice thing about angel groups and angel investing, you sort of get to try things on, get to try it on to see if you like it and, and whatnot. And, you know, some people do and some people don't. And so as opposed to kind of like betting your career into an area that you know, is just not, by the way, the big challenge in, in the startup world is it's difficult to know if you're doing well or not for years down the road, right? Because it just takes these companies a long time to, to basically bake. And so, so if, if, you're, if you really, if you find it important to have, call it like short-term feedback that you're doing good, venture capital is a tough place to be. Beautiful. Thank you for that advice. Um, is there a question that I forgot to ask you? Hmm. Uh, I think we've covered, we've covered a lot of the basics. Cool. Well, thank you, Clint, so much for being here and so generously sharing your data, your wisdom, your philosophy, and also your personal journey with our audience. Very appreciated. And come back soon and have a great day. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on your show. Bye-bye. Bye. We all know that working in sprints is better, but how do we know what to work on? You're in luck because we have a 15-minute exercise that will give you complete clarity on where to take your project next. Go to strategysprints.com sales to complete our short exercise and meet one-on-one -on -one with an expert sprint coach to identify your number one bottleneck.